Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod and our election special. It's an extraordinary time of year and we couldn't let this election pass with all the green commitments and promises and possibly overblown claims that some of our political parties are making without commenting. And instead of bringing in the politicians and letting them ramble on, we decided to actually bring in somebody who really knows what they're talking about. So I'm joined by old friend of the pod, Alex Gilbert, who is a climate change activist and maverick, among other things. <laughs> His words, not mine. Alex, hi, welcome. Thanks words for that back. were never meant to be repeated, but there we go. <laughs> well, there you are, you're down, you're, not, you're, on, you're on tape now forever, digitally rather than taped. So we're going to talk about the manifestos, aren't we? We're going to talk about um, what our parties are promising or not promising and how possibly some of this stuff stacks up and some of the money. But, but just let's wind back a bit and talk about how we got to this place where suddenly... We've gone in the last, I don't know, 12, 18 months from the climate being something that you and I care about passionately and have been thinking about for a long time to being something that's actually centre stage for nearly all of the political parties and is a legitimate source of discussion for them, which is, a, I think, a transformation, really, of that kind of thinking, isn't it? Hugely, hugely. It's incredible how quickly that's moved. And I suppose I've always wondered this, if someone could do a study of sort of progressive parties, politics, social, environmental, whatever, and then watch and see the most conservative, small c, traditional party, how long it takes for that to come. When you read some of the Tory policies, you think this was insane for them just maybe 18 months ago. 10, 20 years ago, this was wild, green, utterly maverick, sort of rebellious policy. And now it's mainstream, retrofitting homes and thinking about wind power. And every, you know, it's amazing. So that's, that's a positive we can take for sure. It is, it is. And do you think that's as a result of, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about this on the pod, obviously, but do you think that's a result of what's happening generally around us, the kind of changing mood music, the, the, the rise in activism, the sense that people feel it's okay to have these conversations in organisations, outside organisations, in the street, or is this just that they've seen a potential vote winner? You have to say it's both, undoubtedly. It's always interesting to see when you are, again, the traditional party, the incumbent of any of any country at any time. They obviously wait and judge and see when it becomes a vote winner. They literally, you know, the whole thing of, you know, at first they sort of ignore you and they laugh at you and eventually they, they adopt what you're saying. And we're seeing that now, things that were just utterly ridiculous, socially again as well, that people wouldn't have believed, even in my lifetime. I'm fairly old now, but not that old. And you can see the change, which is astonishing. So I think it's what I hope as well around this is that the, the positivity has been huge, the positivity around making a better world, not perhaps the message that was around years ago, which is we've all got to just spend more time recycling, we can't eat what we want and fly where we want, you know, but actually a better world and it sort of reminds me of the, the famous cartoon strip a few years ago which says you know what if climate change is a hoax and we've created a better world for nothing <laughs> and it's, it's that ethos though that you know okay if climate change tomorrow was actually all the scientists in the world said you know what 
we were having a laugh. It, there isn't really a problem and the Arctic ice is fine, whatever. Well, what about biodiversity? You know, what about resources? What about improving energy and allowing people a better, safer, cleaner, greener future? Like that, it, you almost want to park climate change sometimes and say, don't even worry about that, but mm. just focus on a better planet for everyone. Yeah. So what strikes you sort of generally about the kind of stuff we've been hearing? I mean, it, 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 I'm gathering from what you're saying that this is more of a, it's not just about the climate. There's this kind of sense of social transformation and a change in social, you know, the social makeup of our society and a desire to make a better world for all of us but the parties are approaching it very very differently aren't they because for some of them it's coming from that we want to transform the the working world we want to create jobs this is an opportunity to transform the way we think about you know income generation and capitalism and for others you can possibly get the sense that it's we've got to do something about the climate let's stick something in the manifesto because because we if we don't we'll be shown up so what what do you think you know what are the headline policies that are making you excited if there are any <laughs> yeah there are there, there's uh, as ever some sort of obvious by their omission but yeah. you know no names mentioned and we are politically neutral here we are um i guess much of it comes down to the, the net zero carbon pledge i mean that's the one that's caught the attention everyone loves a target politicians love a target they love then ignoring or missing those targets but they're well out of office by then and no one remembers i mean that's the, the classic thing but that most of the debate around this is we have to push to zero carbon that's amazing because again a few years ago don't be ridiculous zero carbon that's preposterous they're now all saying it okay great 2050 2045 2030 and again depending on your view on what can be done by then and we can unpack a few of the, the points around that that's what a lot of this comes down to so the overall message good we're going in the right direction great mm -hmm. but by when and obviously you know as a corollary to that how much you're going to spend to get there is going to be the key the key feature so we're going to give them all a mark because they put it all in there <laughs> so they'll get a point <laughs> um you know this is not a scoring process but inevitably it will be um so yes yeah, so that's that's important and what's really important about that is that's then become part of the public discourse so if you talk to someone about you know net zero 12 months ago unless they were probably a bit of a climate geek they wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about it wouldn't be in the common parlance it wouldn't be something that people talked about you know in the pub or on the tube and now I suspect it probably is much, much more. So there's the ownership of the idea, isn't there? And the, and the sharing of that idea across major discourse, political discourse and, and you know, P, big P, small P. Um, so that's a, that's a plus, isn't it? So we've got it out there and we've got it on the table. Whether people really understand what that means, you know, if you perhaps did a little bit of a vox pop of the average voter outside the polling station on the 12th of December, would they know what net zero means? Would they know what the, car, the emissions <laughs> gap is? Not only would they not know, I don't think the politicians know. I don't think local authorities know. Uh, I mean, I ran an event recently with a bunch of local authorities that had already declared zero carbon. So, you know, on board, on side, on message, every one of them. And your plan to get there is sort of slightly strange silence falls across the room. You know, what? I mean, we can all say zero carbon, right? I mean, I can say tomorrow I'm, I'm Brad Pitt. Yeah. There's going to be some steps to get to Brad Pitt. How, how, what I'm are the very, steps? Very close. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost. I'm bordering. But that, for me, that's the classic political thing, isn't it? Say something brilliant, and then yeah. someone says some substance, and that's where you run away and say, oh, Amanda will do all the details. I'm off. And, oh, right, okay. I think, you know, touching on, I suppose, both of your last points, 
having the likes of Extinction Rebellion, other friends of the pod, um, has been absolutely influential because it is the classic case of love them or hate them, and clearly many in the country feel strongly to, to those two ends. They've increased the message, they've got that out. And I think, again, it comes back to that thing of politicians, they, they hate these people, they say they're in their way, they shouldn't be doing this, they shouldn't be doing that, but it does work. We yeah. know it works because it's got the message across. Yeah. And in a fairly, fairly short space of time, because again, that's that's being a little disingenuous and unfair to Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and the others who've been doing this for decades or hundreds of years. So it's a bit unfair to say, oh, because of Greta, mm. we're here. I mean, that's really harsh on the people that were marching in the 60s for this. So, But there's no doubt the Gretas, the David Attenboroughs, it's given it a push. Yeah. And it's helped. So it's now in the discourse. That's great. But actual plans and action, which, you know, we can touch on, we're a little short of really concrete ideas. But I think we could say probably relatively confidently, um, if we're looking at the manifestos, the Green Party does understand net zero. They understand what it means because it must be as part of their DNA, which is about greening the economy and, you know, preserving the planet. So they probably get the theory of, <laughs> of, of getting to net zero. I mean, they've got the most challenging target, haven't they? Because I think they're saying 2025. But, you know, we know that that's, I mean, that's what XR have been calling for. We know that's probably pretty unrealistic, almost unachievable. 2030 is going to be a massive, massive struggle. I mean, it, it is doable. We've had um, quite a lot of people on the pod recently from, from the Grantham Institute. We've been talking about net zero. And I think their take is always that the science is there, the technology is there. You know, the mechanics of doing it is there, but what we lack is political will, commitment and the behaviour change that yeah. we as a planet globally will have to engage in in order to get to net zero. So so I think the Greens probably understand what it means and understand the implications. And they have by far and away got the most ambitious spending plans, haven't they? And, yeah. they, you know, their manifesto is green to the core. Um is any of that achievable, do you think? Just looking at some of the things they're promising. I mean, hundred is it hundred billion a year and yeah. you know, mass, mass sort of kind of, you know, job creation and infrastructure change and you know, is that is any of it doable, do you think? I mean exactly. It's hundred billion a year, twelve billion on renewables, thirty eight billion going towards deep retrofit of homes. I mean, so as ever, if of course is a very subjective word. I mean People often use, don't they, with the Green Revolution, they harken back to the sort of Second World War. And the, the example of Ford is often used. The US, US government said, we're at war now, we need these trucks, these vans. They said, we can't possibly produce that many in the whole history of, of, of you know of vehicle production. We haven't produced that many. And they went, I'll repeat, we're at war, can you do it? And they went, yeah. And they did, yeah. because it was a war. And, yeah. you know... Some people would argue that's what we need. I mean, we need to put the planet on a war fitting in order to shift, you know attention to the only thing that matters which is getting down our carbon so we can you know have a planet in 2040 it, absolutely and i think you know that's certainly where the likes of extinction rebellion would be going people have used a lot the example of the moon recently it came up the other night at one yeah. of the, the parliamentary debates it, as though we are now 1960 and saying you know man on the moon within the decade here transform by again 2030 the numbers aren't quite right but roughly speaking the same could we yeah. transform i think it's a greater achievement than getting someone on the moon because that was, you know, one person's taking foot on the moon. That was just rocket science. That was easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just nothing but rocket science. This is brain surgery. It's way harder. But this is a fundamental shift in society. And I can't emphasize the fundamental bit of that yeah. anymore. The, yeah. You know, nothing changed in America. 
you know, for, I think 400,000 people worked on the NASA project and two people set foot on the moon. One poor fellow had to sit in the, in the shuttle. But, you know, society didn't change. I mean, Americans might argue differently, but it didn't. To get to 2030, we are talking of a fundamental shift. And that comes back to your point, the average person on the street. We are not the average people. We know that. I hope, I wish we were, and I hope people listening to that sort of... By that, I think you mean because of our kind of connection with the subject matter rather than our just general brilliance. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. No, I'm this, I'm this crazy maverick, self-declared. But, you know, most people are not on the street thinking what's zero carbon. They are, you know, making their lives work. They're trying to look after their families, you know, feed their children, pay the mortgage, etc. So they're not sat there worrying about deep retrofit. And... We know how hard that is. I mean, without getting into the the depths of something like energy efficiency, all of the parties mention it. All of them ignore the fact that it's unbelievably hard to do mass, mass retrofit. I mean, millions of homes, everything, the Green Deal, everything that's been tried has failed. Now, there are ways of doing it, and we can go into them in detail. It's maybe a a bit technical. But to get that political will is astonishingly hard in the time so right back to your question can it be done in that time I welcome the push sometimes as we know in life you know reach for the stars and the sky will be yours someday you know there is that mm. Let, let's aim for 2030 and if we do it in 2037 2040 okay that's great the danger of course is you say 2050 yeah and now it's 2070 and maybe it's too late yeah well undoubtedly be too late won't it um so what about the kind of sheer mechanics of some of this so in order to do that mass retrofit for example we're going to need a lot of people who are very skilled in those types of professions you know and do we physically have the person power the manpower the person power to actually do that I mean we do we have the engineers and the plumbers and the you know and 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 the experienced builders and the guys who can put the insulation in and you know all of those sorts of things do we have that physically no sadly that's a short answer to a, a very important question we don't that is glossed over. The The plumbing requirement alone is into the hundreds of thousands of people, however you look at this. I work very closely with sectors like district heating, uh, electric vehicles. Again, we are way short of people that are capable of reaching the district heating targets that are qualified in um, changing out batteries in electric vehicles. So this will come, but obviously by definition, you need programmes of retraining workforce, of graduate employment, apprenticeships, all the way through basically to you know, STEM subjects in school to get people studying the engineering that allows them to work in professions that can assist. Clearly, that's a 10-year plan minimum. So to move people through on that pathway, that magnificent, utterly sort of wondrous pathway for the future of this country, but that can't be delivered in the very near term. I don't see any evidence of commitment to that in any of the manifestos either. I don't see anyone talking about the need to reskill and upskill the workforce. And, you know, I don't, I, it, there's a lot of talk about what they want to do with the money, but there isn't talk about how we're going to get there, as you said. So, so and, you know, the education commitments are not around that. And they're certainly not the, you know, there isn't the current skilled workforce. So, so there isn't a plan. It's like talking about all these new nurses that we need, but, you know, there's no plan to actually get them there. Absolutely. I think that the, the skills are mentioned in several of them. Certainly Labour and Lib Dems mentioned the skills that are required, mentioned the retraining. Labour's talked quite a bit about, um, for instance, the North Sea tax, which obviously implies sort of going the oil and gas industry hard. And I can't imagine many oil and gas 
workers are going to be voting Labour in this election when you look at the, you know, the potential there. Um, slightly trickier for the SNP. Mm. They obviously have to be careful around oil and gas. It's still a huge part of the northeast of, of Scotland's economy, so they're a bit more wary. But They have got plans to reskill the workers at Fast Lane, then, haven't they? Because they talk about getting rid of the nuclear deterrent and then actually spending that money on upskilling and training people to do different Absolutely. things, particularly around climate change. Absolutely. And to me, this is something that got... It's got missed out in, in the last, well, three now. I forget we had that little general election that was slipped in. So the last three big elections, I've been calling out for someone to, to get a grip on the skills and training piece. You know, we don't want to talk too much about America, just depress everyone. But, you know, that for me, Trump won this, as we know, basically on the, the sort of those few key states. Yeah. And within those key states, he promised to keep those jobs. Now, you know, without being too redactive about this, that came down to certain industries and certain jobs, for instance, coal. And there is no rational person on the planet that could explain why somebody would continue wanting to work in an industry like coal when they could have a better job. I mean, what in your mindset, other than a fear of change, which of course is much of humanity's issue, would make you want to go back down a coal mine Mm. when you could work on a wind farm or on a roof fitting solar panels I, I just but it worked because they harken back to making America great putting people back in jobs I think we've moved beyond that in this country I think but I'm still concerned that you cannot either promise people their old jobs that's not good but equally you can't just say to people we're getting rid of your new jobs because they're rubbish that doesn't work you have to explain to people how you know people's Lives depend on North Sea oil and gas, for instance. They depend on working in manufacturing sectors that we know are struggling. Mm. For many years in this country, all we've done really is bail those industries out. Effectively, we've just paid money to a foreign employer, no names mentioned, but certain employers in the northeast of England and in Wales, where we've just bribed them and said, we know these industries are dying. We know you want to move abroad. Please, please stay. We'll give you any tax rebate you want. We'll give you allowances, whatever. It's a bribe, and it's preposterous. Cause and it's in- very short-term, isn't it? Cause incredibly. Jobs go. You know, Tata Steel's just announced a 1,000 jobs going. So There know, we go. No, no names mentioned, but there you go. You I'm allowed to say that because I'm on the Portland. Yeah. So, but clearly, Tata has interests all over the place, including yeah. huge amount of renewables in India. So let's get a training programme. Let's yeah. slowly get those people into new areas and have them making electric vehicles instead yeah. of vehicles or, you know, working on renewables instead of coal. I mean, this again, I'm not saying anything that's that's astonishingly genius here, um, but we've shied away from it, and I hope we can get towards that. Okay, let's talk about renewables, because they appear in all of the manifestos, and, you know, to a larger or greater extent, you know, Labour's got some pretty um, dramatic um, promises around, you know, 7,000 offshore wind turbines, 2,000 onshore. You know, I, again, I guess that qu- question of not just whether or not we can afford it is if, is it affordable because that just depends on your economic no, uh, model doesn't it you know you spend to create etc um is it doable i mean you know physically if it takes a couple of years to get through the environmental impact for putting up a turbine you know they, have we got enough space to put all the turbines and more importantly can the grid cope with that kind of you know that kind of level of, 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 of energy coming through from, from from onshore and offshore. I mean, these promises sound great, but, but when you unpick them, you know, is how much of this? I mean, half of it, do you think? 30% of it is, is doable, feasible, realistic? So I'm going to say it, I'm going to say 100% can be done. 
Right. It's again, it's a bit like the if by 2030, if you believe this is a war, we know we can do it. But we're probably not treating it like a war, which makes you think perhaps it can't be done. Um, but a true green revolution, and again, I'm paraphrasing Thomas Friedman here, but when someone said this is a green revolution and he went, no, no, when there's a revolution, people get hurt. This is a green party. It's just a big party of loads of people having fun. It's not a revolution. And I kind of, again, you can unpack that however you want, but clearly this isn't a green revolution. We're, we're not at that stage. But let's assume we do take that forward. I mean, there's a number of questions in, in what you've said there, but the Tories have gone for offshore wind firmly and backed massively away from onshore wind. The other parties are still insistent on onshore wind. Again, depending on how you view that, we're going to need a mix of everything, clearly. Mm. We're going to need onshore as well. So somebody somewhere is going to have to unpack some of the planning laws around that and allow for onshore, because that can work. And we won't get into farming there, but again, I think that would be a, there's a far better use of farming and agriculture, but perhaps we'll come back to that. And, yeah. But offshore wind still has huge potential. There is still plenty more space. It's been incredibly successful. It is now pound for pound, the cheapest energy in the country, which is astonishing, because when I started working in the field, it was still a bunch of wild hippies sticking this sort of windmill out in the sea, and it is now the cheapest you can get. And that's that's incredible. Yeah. So, undoubtedly, we need more of that. The grid comment, I mean, note that Labour, of course, are planning on nationalising the grid, so there's a whole privatisation, nationalisation debate there. Perhaps we won't have time for that. But however you look at it, the grid needs to make fundamental changes. But we need more local supply. Yeah. We need to free up local capacity. And we then need far more sort of demand-side response and far more technical measures that allow for stability on the grid. Local generation balanced out with local supply as well. And are you seeing any of that? Are you seeing any of those kind of smart energy, local energy systems? And we've just done a, a, a programme actually with Grantham about, you know, about smart energy and, and you know, stuff that you're interested in, particularly around district heating and, and local energy systems. Are you seeing any of that in any of the manifestos? Is anybody drilling down into that level of detail and saying this is a potential way forward? Not in great detail, to be fair. I mean, they would maybe argue that they don't have the space to go into detail, although that could, of course, be an excuse for you know, we, we don't know. Yeah, the people that worked on the Labour, and it, it states who they're not by name, but it states their profession. I know the Labour manifesto was worked on by people in the industry that get it. Okay. So, so there's a credibility issue there that you, you feel comfortable with the kind of some of the claims that they're making. Yeah, and I think, to be fair, on the Labour one, yes. Again, with Lib Dev and Green, I think there's enough, enough credibility, enough strength and support behind that. It is lacking detail, but frankly, mm. I've never seen a manifesto that wasn't just full of holes and there we go. Um, but it can be done and it is that balance again of, like all these things, supply and demand. You know, there's yeah. no point producing all this power if we don't have the homes that are currently just leaking it all yeah. out into the sky. Yeah, so we're going to have to sort the homes out at the same time as you're doing the heat networks. Again, if you're putting in air source heat pumps, which is me mentioned by a couple here, yeah. that's essential. Turning homes electric... But while you're doing that, of course, it's only electric. It's only positive if the grid carbon yeah, has decreased course. to a level. So um, yeah. lacking detail, but, but getting there. Okay. Well, just touch on, we talked about electric. So let's touch on electric vehicles, which I know is a subject quite close to your heart, um, and the infrastructure. I mean, currently running at about 1.5%, almost 2% of the total number of cars on the road being electric. Um, 
big promises here about you know increasing the infrastructure and you know the electric pushing towards electric vehicles and of course already statements about you know taking diesel and petrol off the roads i mean again this is a these are big promises but whether or not they're deliverable and i mean you we probably have a problem with infrastructure don't we in terms of charging and number of charging points um we have a bit of a problem with the whole capacity issue in terms of just producing enough batteries for electric vehicles i mean there are lots and lots of issues around this some of those claims sound great are they matched i mean what's worrying me is are they matched by an idea of actually saying well okay let's just look at transport as a whole a unified approach to transport and actually trying to get people out of cars altogether rather than just saying let's make all the cars electric you know so is there do you sense any kind of real overarching proper transport strategy or again is it a bit of cherry picking you know let's put electric vehicles in there they sound good you know we are lacking an overarching transport strategy <laughs> agreed um undoubtedly there's a lot of individual references they all say more public transport they all say electrified trains um there's some dispute about whether or not i mean who is it who wants to scrap hs2 is that the green party i can't remember i've never read that somewhere the greens were scrapping it yes and that that came up in the climate debate last night um which is a tricky one because at the same time as saying we've got to have better and, and more high-speed rail um and then saying scrapping that but we know that hs2 is full of all sorts of issues and going through ancient yeah. forests and, uh, and yeah. there's so many things SNP supports it because of course that's because they're, they're basically viewing it as what is the south of the, the country and they're still we're still one country still um, get all this support and at we the don't. time of recording at the time <laughs> yeah so the, so the great <laughs> Scottish referendum of, of early December 2019 but so yeah they're, they're worried about uh, losing their EV charge points I mean that's one of those areas where Again, you've got a classic sort of Tory, leave it to the market. There's a bit of support. There's a recent fund been announced by the uh, Conservative government, £400 million um, charge point infrastructure investment fund. But there won't be a huge amount of other support. Uh, Labour talk about a publicly owned set of charge points that could help. I think we do need public guidance across the country to help facilitate charge points. There, it's a it's a thriving industry. There's plenty of, of independent operators out there now, which is fantastic. And it's one of those industries that's moving so fast that, frankly, it doesn't really matter what the politicians say. The industry will dictate a lot of this. So, for instance... So there is a capacity for, for on, around EV. There's the capacity to really transform. There will. It still needs, for me, it needs the public sector to help set that, to yeah. give it guidance, that we don't end up with preposterous situations where... One borough has a relationship with a charge point operator and they put in a charge point hub and it's 10 yards away from the next borough because it's mm. on the boundary. Mm. And someone says, why did you give that planning when there's one next door? And they say, yeah. well, that's a different authority. So it, it needs more public sector guidance. For me, that's like all the best stuff in life. The public sector you know, sets the scene, gives that guidance, and then you let industry thrive. But a lot of the debate, again, like the net zero carbon, is when ultimately petrol and diesel are phased out. Yeah. So the Tories have acknowledged that maybe 2040 is too far. The fact is, if you talk to anyone in industry, they're saying that that year is utterly irrelevant because nobody will be making petrol and diesel cars. There'll be, there'll be a handful of sort of retro vehicles in the same way now you can get a, a Jaguar E-Type from the 60s, I'm sure off an auction somewhere or, mm. or whatever, but that is not a mainstream car. All of the mainstream providers will be producing EVs. Not quite soon enough for my liking, but by the middle of the next decade, end of the next decade, so 2040 is, is irrelevant. Yeah. yeah. There will not be petrol and diesel being produced then. And the market will have driven that, that change, won't it? And therefore, as you say, the market will drive the change in terms of the charging points. 
Um, what about biodiversity and those sorts of issues? I mean, you know, I think that the Tories have got a five hundred million pound Blue Planet Fund, which is just sounds like a you know, just mention the word Blue Planet and people will tick the box. Yeah. They? So, I mean, are you seeing any kind of biodiversity commitments and trends that are interesting in any of these? Yeah, it's again, it's one of those themes that just until a few years ago felt like a, a real hardcore sort of green activists uh, agenda mm. biodiversity it's amazing how quickly topics like colony collapse disorder the, the bees mm. has come to the public attention yeah i remember having conversations a few years ago and and no one had heard about that except vince cable to be fair he's been banging on about bees for <laughs> yeah yeah give out to vince the bee man. absolutely but people are people are astonished now you have conversations with like ordinary folk where they say things like you don't hear birds anymore you know yeah. I haven't been stung by a bee for 15 years that's a good thing obviously yeah. don't get insects on the windscreen is a classic isn't it yeah and and then you sort of go it's true you really don't see it and I mean we live in the city it's a bit different I think you're slightly outside but I'm yeah. you know I'm city based and to some extent we accept that but it's pretty frightening when everyone looks forward and thinks the future is, is effectively foxes and grey squirrels rooting through our bins mm. and all the other animals are long gone. And I think, again, a few incidences, a few incidents lately, like it always takes, there's always an incident like the, the plastic issue with David Attenborough and everything. Yeah. It's jumped up the agenda. They're all noting it. How you deal with that is a huge issue. Much of that comes down to how we treat land in this country as we know, land is owned by a handful of people. Truly, you know, yeah. not much more than that. And how we're going to address that. Um, Plaid Cymru last night, speaking about, you know, keeping meat production in Wales. It's a key part of their economy. Absolutely. Using those grasslands, keeping that. Somewhere like up in Scotland, where again, a few families owned a huge amount of the highlands. Um, we're going to need to really rethink land in this country to increase biodiversity. That's for sure. And that will be a big challenge. Yeah, that's where our real revolution might come, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> People might be taking to the hills. Um, <clears throat> okay, we're talking about land. Let's talk a little bit about agriculture and trees, obviously, because trees yeah. have appeared in all the manifestos yeah. and they're all kind of in a bidding war as to how many trees they're going to plant <laughs> and whether or not that is even feasible or practical. And I think that, you know, the Labour campaign claim of, was it the numbers of billions, two billion trees by 2040, which someone very cleverly, I think it, my Chris Mason, who I just adore, if you're listening, Chris Mason, um, election cost, has worked out that it's actually 200 a minute for the, every, you know, every minute of every hour of every day between now and 24 in order to get those trees planted. So slightly unrealistic. Sounds great, but slightly unrealistic. Though I did hear somebody saying that the plans to plant more trees are actually going down quite well with, weirdly, with the Farmers Union. The NFU thinks that having trees, more trees is feasible because it's a way of just changing the agricultural use of land and actually we can have trees and we can have grazing underneath trees and they can sit in amongst the solar farms. So so what do we think about kind of some of the agricultural tree planting issues and the land issues quite apart from the ownership? Negatives first, yeah. get them out of the way. Undoubtedly it is being used as a bit of a, a, a fop, a ruse, whatever you want to call it, to, to placate the green campaigners to affect the ordinary people again if you like because everyone loves a tree yeah. pretty much universally we all have a tree those trees just won't be delivered in the time there's just no way you're going to get we haven't even got the stock have we we've got that number of saplings we don't have that many saplings <laughs> we don't have many official tree planters 
yes, other people may have noticed that the great oaks of Middle England didn't grow <laughs> in an election cycle. So, you know, I deal with this often in the day job when people talk about chopping down a tree here and putting another one there. What's the problem? The problem is the 70 years that it takes for that tree to reach full maturity. I mean, yeah. and I think we all know that, but forget it when we just talk about planting trees. So I'm deeply concerned, and as ever, I'm very concerned that tree planting, again, just becomes an excuse for business as usual. Yeah. It is the equivalent, really, of the carbon offset, isn't yeah. it? Carbon offsetting's good. It's it's better than not doing it. But if but that's entry-level stuff. Uh, right. It? So we're all going to carry on flying. The premium flyers that we know 10% take, uh, well, well over 50% of flights. 15% take 70% of flights. There we go. 15% Domestic. take 70% Domestic of flights. Yeah. Right. And so all those business users, but as long as a little bit of it is offset, because it'll only ever be a small portion anyway, mm. we can all carry on. Yeah. Clearly not. And I'm... I'm deeply concerned about those things. There's a, without sounding like an economist here, there's a there's a real substitutability factor there, which allows you to con, you know, continue one thing whilst affecting the other poorly. And some things just cannot be substituted. So I am nervous about it, but undoubtedly any tree growing, as long as it isn't substituting for something else, yeah, we'd love to see more of it. As you said, it can hugely affect biodiversity. I'm very interested in the integration of renewables and biodiversity, again, it's something that's sort of close to my heart elsewhere. I think for too long we've been ruling out, for instance, solar farms yeah. for saying that they decrease biodiversity. There's plenty of proof now that you can do both. Yeah. There's plenty of evidence that wind farms are not harming the animals, the birds that, that people were claiming. So we've got those mixed-use developments, haven't we, in Chase? We don't just need trees to... I mean, we can have shrubs and other you know, green plants to help so, soak up carbon. So in terms of sequestration, there are other ways of doing it as well, aren't there? So we can Absolutely. have that mixed picture. And that would be much, much better for, for general wildlife and biodiversity, wouldn't it? So, you know, we could have more of a NEP approach. We've got a mix of shrub and tree and, you know, all sorts of other things. But again, to me, that's just a classic case of if you get the right experts in. I'm working on a scheme at the moment where we've got some biodiversity experts. We've got some solar developer experts. Genuinely, and I'm not saying it's easy. It isn't. No. But we've got the right people together to say, let's produce a solar farm that has net biodiversity positive effect. And again, everything you said about the planting, ensuring that the butterflies that were there before on the hedgerows that are maintained, you can do this. You know, there are ways of having solar farms with gaps in that allow for the mammalian crossings and what have you. So it can be done. So again, if you want to enforce that, you just put a law in that says, you know, you can get planning for the solar farm as long as X, Y, Z. And if someone says, I don't know how to do that, then you get in a biodiversity consultant and they'll tell you. Yeah. And that's that kind of positive development rather than a you can't do it because of this that it'd be fantastic to see. We could talk about this all night, but we ought to guys guess draw, draw it to a close. I mean, so does one stand out more than the other for you, or is it just some, you know, curate's eggs, good in parts for all of them, bad in parts could try harder for others? I mean, it's easy to say the Greens have got the most aggressive approach. You'd expect that. They're, they're always pushing the envelope on these things. I think they will get a huge amount of votes because of it. Yeah. Um, where that leaves them in a parliamentary sense and as a party, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Lib Dems, we've done this whole chat and avoided the B word, which is which yeah. is very good. Um, but they've also you know, got the, the... I mean, they're talking about 2045, aren't they, for, for net zero? Is that perhaps... Although it doesn't sound as sexy, it's a tiny bit more realistic? Yes, and I think... Whatever it is, I mean, one of the one of the key messages to come out of this, and I've heard this a lot. Um, I'm not sure it's true. I really hope it is that we know that this isn't an issue that one party can go on and deliver. They absolutely have to work together. And 
you know, we sound like parents of toddlers and, you know, you've got to learn to play together. But what I really hope is that people in this country seriously, seriously hold them to account on this. That if we spend in American style, where the Democrats and Republicans just fight each other all day and nothing gets done, nothing, I really hope people say, okay, whoever gets in, all right, and in the moment, you know, the favourites, the Conservatives to, to for, you know, to, to stay in, in power. I hate that term, in power. It should be, you know, in, in government to serve the people. Yeah, but anyway, incumbent, I think, yeah, would be the expression. Um, that they can genuinely work together. So working with other countries will be absolutely essential. And the Conservatives obviously have made a, a firm play to say they want to do that, but out of Europe, and it gives them more control and ability to do so. Clearly, the other parties pretty much disagree with that phrase and say we have to be in Europe to achieve this. But avoiding that debate, this isn't a unilateral position. It absolutely is going to need everybody to work together on this. Without doubt. And I guess if we can cling to some crumbs of comfort from all of this terrible process, the fact we're in this chaos, it's the fact that we, you know, the conversation we started with, the fact that we are even having this conversation about the climate and it's there first and foremost in all of these manifestos in greater or lesser degree, with greater or lesser financial commitments, means that we have probably turned a bit of a corner here and that, you know, we can come back and hold their feet to the fire if we need to, um, to ensure that some of this stuff goes through. And I think possibly for me, I take comfort in the fact that because it's being talked about politically, it's also being talked about elsewhere. You know, it is permeating through business. It's seen as a priority now. You know, we both work a lot in the corporate sector. We're seeing change in organisations because it's a legitimate conversation to be had having and we have to do this together it's not just the responsibility of government or us as individuals it's government it's individuals it's organizations it's communities we have to be joined up and connected absolutely and i think you know that's something that we talked about the progress towards the you know whatever end we may achieve here but let's take net zero carbon which again people wouldn't say that still doesn't give us the perfect planet but it's an improvement towards that end we said the movement of government, movement of people. I mean, we haven't particularly said about business and academia, the other sort of pillars of society. Business, you can see huge steps. From major businesses, from the listed companies, great improvement. That's fantastic. Now, the, the mass of SMEs that are out there, uh, small and medium enterprises, that is, are still some way behind. And we still know it's hard for them. Frankly, they don't welcome taxation that's going to hinder them. Um so there's issues there and how you achieve that, even the retrofitting of their businesses and how they go about business every day. That's challenging. But we've seen a huge shift in business. And I think that will continue to increase. That's very positive. Again, the same with academia. Too far behind on this, actually. Really too far behind because those guys should be clever. Mm-hmm. They should have got the message. But universities only now are coming to some of the divestment uh, cases to some of the, you know, increasing the courses on the, the the key materials. So they've been behind the curve, disappointingly. But I yeah. think they're coming to it. Some of which, of course, is the push of the students and the customers and the employees of the aforementioned businesses. So it's coming together. I, you can't say your twenty nineteen is some sort of perfect storm. We're not there, but we're on the right path. And I hope the next decade we get there. And given the election cycle we have at the moment, you know, we could easily be having this conversation again next year anyway. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. So we can't tell you who to vote for, but we would say vote, you know, and actually I would say it doesn't matter in some ways who you vote for as long as you vote because it's really, really important. But vote with your conscience. 
and vote with your heart because that's important too and wherever you wherever you are in the country in if you can't tactically vote if you feel you need to do that please just vote and encourage everyone you know to vote because we have to keep our politicians to account Alex, thank you so much. I mean, we might, if we have the stomach and the energy, come back together again after the election and just That'd see if we can unpick where we might be, depending on who wins or doesn't win, on the night of the 12th, in the early morning of the 13th. Are you going to stay up? Are you going to be up all night? You might have to for this one. I think the last one was just a bizarre election that no one even seemed to care about. I think this one actually will get... A lot of appetite. Hopefully, like you say, people are going to vote. They are going to get out. Registration is up, which is encouraging. Yeah, and and especially in young people. Looking at the voter registration figures, actually, which I did. I'm enough of a geek to do that. A lot more young people, which, again, bodes very well for the climate. Because without portraying a very boring cliche that older people aren't as bothered, the fact is it is younger people that, that do push this agenda harder. So that gives us some hope that people are registering. They will vote. And then, yeah, maybe we can all get together afterwards and see what's happening. And if you happen to be in Leytonstone, you could, of course, vote for Henry Scott, who is a friend of the pod from the UK Student Climate Network. He's been on the pod a couple of times and I think might be the youngest candidate in this election. Go, Henry. Um, keep your comments coming. You can tweet us at planet underscore pod. Follow us on Instagram or visit the website. We'd love to hear from you. It's really important. Thank you so much to my guest, to Alex, for all his words and his wisdom. And if we have the energy, Alex, let's get together again when, <laughs> when we've had some sleep after the 13th and Fantastic. find out what's happening. Brilliant. Thanks. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.